Agriculture is not natural. I mean, the whole process is completely unnatural. We slaughter animals in slaughterhouses using mechanisms and using devices that wouldn't exist in the natural world and don't exist in the natural world. If, if you want to eat natural foods, then good luck, because it's going to be really hard to do that and also impossible on a population-wide scale. So we need an unnatural element to our food system because that's how we can produce enough food to feed everyone. So I think the whole idea that it's not natural, well, neither is so much medication we take, neither is the technology we use, neither are the homes that we rely on. And we should all thank our stars that we don't live in a truly natural system because we have evolved beyond that and are far better for it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Plum Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. And today's episode is one you definitely do not want to miss. We're joined by a very special guest, Earthling Ed, also known as Ed Winters, for our third enlightening conversation together on this show. Ed is not just a well-known figure in the vegan community for his activism and compelling speeches, he is also an author who has a knack for addressing complex topics with clarity and compassion. Today, we're diving into his latest book, How to Argue with a Meat Eater and Win Every Time. This book is a powerhouse of knowledge and strategy covering a wide range of topics from ethics and environmental concerns to health and nutrition. It's much more than just a guide, it's a tool for empowerment. Ed masterfully provides readers with insights on how to engage in healthy debates, leaving them feeling confident and ready to tackle any argument with grace and effectiveness. In our conversation, we're going to explore the nuances of the book, the motivation behind its creation, and how it can serve as a blueprint for anyone looking to have impactful, pervasive conversations about veganism. Whether you are a seasoned vegan advocate or starting to explore the plant-based conversations, Ed's insights are bound to enrich your perspective. So sit back, relax, and join us as we delve deeper into a discussion that's not only about winning arguments, but also opening hearts and minds to the vegan way of life. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Peeman Podcast. It is episode three. Absolutely. Thank you, Robbie, for having me back yet again. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi Milo, nice to meet you. My yeah, name is nice Ed. Uh, yeah, no, thank you very much. I have a banner and I'm at Harvard University today with this banner. And the banner says, give me your best argument for not being vegan. You, you've been kindly waiting, which I appreciate. You've now sat down. So tell me, what's your best argument? So, I mean, you know, I guess, uh, you know, you came here to Harvard Square. You, you put your table down here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, do you think it's possible when you put your table down, you might have squished like a couple ants or something? I mean, it's un- unlikely. Um, we yeah. do we do check before uh, before looking for insects beforehand, so it's I unlikely. Suppose. So when you walk around on a given day, um, it's entirely possible you squash some ants or some insects, some small bugs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is possible. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, a, it's, imp- it's impossible to be pure and to avoid all situations. That I guess. Cause harm. I, I mean, I would say it's rather likely that you destroy at least some bugs, some Probably. insects. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, do you? Right? Yeah, agreed. And, yeah. and you also consume animal products as well. I do. So yeah. when, when you do that, do you lose any sleep over that? Like, uh, Well, not necessarily because, well, firstly, I'm not necessarily aware of it. But secondly, uh, ethical consideration can be different based on the scenario as well. But based on the scenario, so like what aspects of the scenario? Well, I mean, I guess if you view like an ant, yeah. would you say that the, the life of an ant morally, which is killed um, unconsciously and without intention, do you think that ethically that's comparable to the, the intentional slaughtering of an animal such as a cow? I, I don't think it's comparable, but I don't think it's comparable not because it's not intentional. I think it's not comparable because the ant's life is less valuable sure. than say a cow's life or a dog's life or I something like that. Well. So you, so you do acknowledge that there's like some some distinction to be made 
between how valuable the life of, of some organism Absolutely. is based on their species. Yeah. Alright, so like where do you think that line stops? Like well, I think when we view food choices, because obviously that's what we're primarily talking about, um, it's absolutely fine and, and I think logical to create like some sort of gradient of moral worth, you know, and, and I think a lot of that gradient is, is based on things like sentience and, and consciousness and the capacity to experience. But if I create this kind of gradient, I have to go out of the edible foods that I have in front of me, which of these food sources is least likely to be, or is the least sentient, is the least conscious, is the least likely to experience. And if I had the choice between cows, chickens, pigs, lambs, and plants, plants are those which are at the bottom of this gradient in terms of edible food choices. So, so morally, that's the choice I have that contributes uh, the least to harm and suffering with the food choices that I have. So I think that gradient actually works in favor of veganism. So uh, we're here to talk about your amazing new book, How to Argue with a Meat Eater and Win Every Time. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Tell us a little bit about how the idea for this book came along and how does it lead on from your first book? Well, when I was writing the first book um, and we were, myself and the publishing team were discussing titles, we had this title, How to Argue with a Meat Eater. And um, we were kind of umming and ahhing about it and it didn't work for the first book. It wasn't suitable for the contents of the first book. But in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I, I can absolutely see what book this is. It was almost writing itself through the title. So when, when I got offered a second book, it, it was just there in front of me. Let's write how to argue with a meat eater. Because obviously through the years where I've been advocating for veganism, I've had the, the the privilege, if that's the word. Sometimes it's not been so, it doesn't feel so privileged, but the privilege to be able to speak to so many people about this issue um, across a you know, wide spectrum of different backgrounds, beliefs from farmers, ranchers, hunters to everyday consumers, you know, in the UK, America, wherever it may be. And so I've had an opportunity to discuss veganism a lot and also have a lot of my arguments stress tested and you know had lots of opportunities to try different forms of communication to see what works and what resonates and hopefully what's impactful and so the idea behind this book was kind of twofold the first thing was to really address all the different arguments against veganism and then show why they don't hold up why they lack veracity and then the uh, the second one was really to empower readers you know, predominantly vegans as well, of course, to feel more confident and capable in their conversations. Because I strongly believe that the issue we have as advocates is not a message issue. We've got the science, we've got the logic, we've got the the morality. When you look at it objectively, there isn't really an argument besides, besides maybe some practicality arguments around why someone wouldn't be vegan. But when you then look at the state of the world, the question becomes, well, why is it that more people aren't vegan? And I think there's so many reasons for that. But one of the most problematic things that we face as vegans is not what to say, but how to say it. Mm. Because I think often we have an optics problem and often we can be our own worst enemy in these conversations. So it's not just about knowing what to say, what the arguments are, but importantly, how do we get these arguments across in a way that brings people on board rather than alienates them and pushes them away? Yeah. The, the, what's interesting about those points is the evolution of the argument. When we initially encounter this lifestyle, which often feels completely at odds with everything we see around us. We go out in the street, we see billboards advertising meat. We're at school, we see it in, you know, in the canteen. We, we're at university, it's everywhere. You know, it's, it's become such a, well, it's always been a part of our lives, you know, especially in, in this part of the world. And so to be vegans and sort of emerge into this very carnistic world, for many, is a shock. Mm. People go through this sort of traumatic phase. Touched on it before in the past, but 
I'd love to hear about your evolution. Like, where did you start? And tell us how you were, where you are now, because the way that you talk about this issue has evolved considerably over time. Yeah. And, you know, how has that changed you as a person? Because obviously, you know, it has, it has obviously affected your life. It's obviously opened up a world to you. As you say, you, you've spoken to so many different people. If anyone has seen your YouTube channels, some of the people that you do speak to are incredibly challenging. But talk us through that process and that evolution that you've had, which has obviously culminated in this, I guess, almanac of arguments. <laughs> right. Yes. That's a nice phrase. I like that. I think the first thing is to think before I was vegan, I was I wouldn't say staunchly against veganism, but certainly wasn't on board with it. And I used to think the vegans were weird and militant and extreme and were really not likable and certainly not aspirational. And so I think what I learned quickly when I started advocating for veganism is that, you know, I'm appealing to people like who I used to be. And if I used to have this impression of vegans, how is my advocacy technique reflecting on that type of person? I think about who I was, you know, pretty stubborn pretty, um, you know, insular, maybe not, you know, thinking too broadly about these issues in my day-to-day -day life. So what would have worked for me? And I, and I think when I first started my vegan advocacy, the intention was good, you know, but sometimes the delivery wasn't so good. The language, the, the body language, the, the tone, the accusational language, the judgmental language. And I think I quickly realized that when I was having conversations, I was ultimately failing with my one objective. And if I'm saying to myself, hey, I'm an advocate, and so my role, my job, if you like, is to bring people on board and is to make people feel more favorably about veganism. But at the end of these conversations, the opposite has been achieved. Well, I shouldn't be doing this job or I need to change. And so I think there is an element of accountability we have to hold over ourselves because if we're putting ourselves in the position where we're advocating on behalf of someone else, because you know we're advocating on behalf of animals in these situations, if we fail to be able to do that in a meaningful or effective way, then perhaps we're causing more harm than good. And I had that kind of harsh conversation with myself and kind of evolved from there and realized that, you know, asking questions, uh, encouraging people to reflect on their behaviors, you know, asking people to tell me how they feel rather than telling them how I feel. All of these things kind of evolved over time. And the more I did them, the, the better I felt about it. And there's a certain irony, I suppose, which is the longer I've been vegan, the more I've come to understand why people aren't. And you'd, you'd feel that maybe the longer you were vegan, the more frustrated and annoyed and judgmental you'd, you'd become. But I think the inverse is true because you have that initial phase where you're very angry, you're very upset, and you think, well, if only people just knew this, they would obviously change. You know, I just need to tell them and then they'll get it. And that doesn't happen because that's not how the human mind works or how you know human psychology operates. And so then you then, you then have to adapt and you then have to try and meet people where they're at. And I think sometimes as advocates, we have this belief that being understanding or empathetic to, towards why people aren't vegan is somehow a bad thing. Like we're somehow letting the animals down or we're somehow misrepresenting our position because we need to let everyone know just how serious that is. But actually, I think the opposite is true. I think understanding and empathy allows us to bring people on board and actually allows us to achieve our aims in a, in a much more effective way. So what is your key ethical argument? Is it really about animal rights? Yeah, I mean, the reason I went vegan and, and the main pillar of veganism, which I promote, is that of trying to reduce animal suffering and death. Because what we do to animals for food, we don't have to do. You know, we put 90% of pigs in gas chambers in this country. We take babies away from their mothers. We macerate newborn baby chicks in the, in the egg industry when they're male. So we do a whole host of truly terrible things to animals. And the important thing is we don't have to do those things. So we should stop doing them. So for you, an animal life is as valuable as a human life? 
Not necessarily, but an animal's life is worthy enough to not be reduced to a meal on my dinner plates. Now, it's interesting in your books. Your book is really uh, about rhetoric. It's about persuasion. You're talking about how to argue with a meat eater. Right. What are the key elements of your book? Can you give us any of the tips? I'm, I'm not sure how many uh, uh, vegans watch the show. Well, I hope, uh, yeah, maybe not so many, but um, the thing I always think is vegans often have an optics problem, right? And I know that viewers of this show may look at me as a vegan and think, well, a vegan activist is going to be judgmental and militant and forceful. And so I know that vegans have an optics problem. And I think that actually the way that we can create genuine conversations is by meeting each other where we're at and dissecting each other's views. Because I don't think the, the idea behind veganism is something we're all at odds at. Everyone here says that we're against animal cruelty, but how about we put that into practice and say, well, if it's wrong to kick a dog, surely it must be immoral to force a pig into a gas chamber so that's, the throat that, of an animal. That's a very interesting approach. So you take the view that, and you're right, there is a consensus, isn't there? People are always outraged when an animal is harmed. Remember that footballer hurt that kitten, Absolutely. for instance. Like people, it's just a consensus. Yeah. One of my favorite references about ideas and conversing and sharing knowledge is, is using the fictional film Inception. And we maybe talked about this in the last episode where, you know, the human mind is built in such a way that it has protective mechanisms around core beliefs. Right. And that if we approach a person with aggressive body language or an aggressive tone of voice, we have evolved as a species to protect our core beliefs. If we didn't have these mechanisms in place, you could tell people to jump off cliffs and they would listen to you if you were a person of influence. What's fascinating about the evolution of the argument and, and the process that you've been through and the process that many advocates go through is understanding that, you know, meeting a person where they're at and, as you say, building a sense of compassion and connection with them isn't about being an apologist or making excuses for them, but it's about creating a framework with which you can have a level playing field where the person feels... I guess, confident and uh, secure to be able to open up to you and to talk to you because you're never going to be able to create that inception, you know, plant the idea in the mind of the other person and let it germinate and blossom if the defense mechanisms are always going to get in the way. And I think ego plays a big role in this, doesn't it? You know, if we feel a sense of superiority in every single conversation we have with others, we never allow the other person to be imperfect or to evolve because, you know, we stand on our pedestal, we look down on others and we sort of, you know, communicate in the way we communicate. We might be waving our arms, we might be getting angry. The conversation was always going to end badly. But what's so fascinating about, you know, like the Socratic method and asking questions rather than telling people what to do, you're drawing that response out of someone in such a, you know, a way that allows for them to come to it on their own rather than you forcing it on them, right. which is can, it requires a lot of patience. <laughs> Certainly so. Patience is the name of the game in many ways, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I, th I think there is, there is this expectation that we place on ourselves to be able to change people's minds and hearts in a very quick period of time. But I think one thing that I've always found empowering is to think about my journey and the the catalysts that I've had throughout the years that have encouraged me to change. Because you might think of like one moment, so I watched Earthlings or I saw this factory farm footage and that's what made me go vegan. But there's a whole series of events that have led up to the point where you've watched Earthlings. You know, why did you want to watch it in the first place? Many what? seeds. Many seeds. And so we should view our role as not being the final catalyst, let's say, but but a part of that process, the planting of the seed is some, some way along that journey for these people so that maybe they themselves feel intrigued to, to research it on their own. So I think it's about setting fair and um, achievable expectations for ourselves and then making sure we go about that in a way that is going to accomplish those goals as effectively as we possibly can. Yeah. Before we dive into the actual arguments themselves, the almanac of arguments, there, there <laughs> Chris it is again. Again. 
let's look at like how do people acquire their beliefs and views. We live in a society which is heavily dominated and controlled by media, by advertising, by the education system. And all of these pillars of the monolith, as I like to call it, prop up this carnistic and uh, speciesist world that we live in. Right. They maintain the hierarchical structures that hold this edifice this monolith in place it seems so it seems so enormous we were early talking earlier talking about the budgets that like mcdonald's have for example for their marketing 400 million dollars a year yeah they have there there are times where we think it can be incredibly overwhelming as individuals we don't have those kinds of budgets to work with but what we do have is the truth on our side but when we say the word truth and we talk about like facts often when we communicate in this way in truth truths and in facts people don't listen they don't want to believe you because they're so heavily influenced by misinformation and disinformation i'd love to talk a bit about the role of misinformation in our society especially on social media untrue information travels according to a study by twitter six times faster than true information because often the way it's packaged up I'd love to hear your thoughts on on misinformation and how it maintains this sort of echo chambers. You know, people get caught in these rabbit warrens of like misinformation and at the bottom in this pit at the bottom is an echo chamber where people then get stuck. Firstly, you know, what is your views and your experience of misinformation and combating it through your platform? But also, what are your theories on how we get people out of these very dark rabbit holes? Mm, It's hard. The second part of that question is, is very hard. My experience, sadly, is daily. I mean, every single day I hear it, read it, have it said to me, misinformation about the healthfulness of plant-based diets, the environmental impact of plant-based diets, it drives me mad. I was watching a a Piers Morgan thing the other day, which is never advisable, obviously. (laughs) Um, Not for your blood pressure. (laughs) Certainly not. And uh, he was discussing about how um, plant foods are transported. Mm. He said, you you know, you fly your plant foods all around the world. I'm like, that, that's not true. I mean, they're, they're transported by boats, almost overwhelmingly always yeah. transported by boats. But there's just this, this narrative that's perpetuated constantly about different things. Mm. And it's overwhelming because most of the time we end up in conversations where we're having to defend ourselves against false information. It's like a game of ping pong. Right, yes, yeah, except less fun. (laughs) It's just, it is so frustrating to have to constantly say, no, that's not true. This is why that's not true. You know, and then even if you say this is why it's not true, people go, I don't believe you. Because the word truth, what, what, what does it mean anymore to people? Everyone decides what's true, you know, rather than critically reflecting to discover what is true. And I think that we live in this very dangerous time where the, the positive of social media and the positive of having so much information is we can access information that often we wouldn't have been able to before. But the downside to that is that it allows for misinformation and nefariously disinformation to spread so quickly that it's really hard for us to get what we want people to see in front of them. And then what you've got to add to that is that the way that misinformation works so effectively in this regard is it tells people what they want to hear. And that's why it's really hard to combat it because we're not just dealing with media and marketing and PR and consultancy propaganda. We're also dealing with the fact that people want to maintain the status quo. They enjoy the things that they're doing. And there's that idea of of a pleasure-pain principle where people make decisions to increase pleasure and decrease pain. And so if we're confronted with the reality that what happens to animals is terrible and it's bad for us and bad for the environment and we need to change, that's a much harder narrative to sell than, oh, by the way, eating meat's good for you. Not only that, red meat's the best food you can eat and it's the best food for the environment and the animals are treated better than anyone else on the planet. All of a sudden, that makes us feel very good. And so it's really hard to try and convince people that the opposite is true, even though the opposite is true. And how do we combat that? I mean, we have to try and be there to to respond to these arguments. We have to, as advocates, 
try as best as we can to have those responses at hand, even though it can be hard to know all the things we need to know, try our best, and then just refute it in situations where we can. But at the same time, it's it's a very challenging battle. And at times it can feel like we're losing it, and especially with this whole narrative about plant-based alternatives and and, and you know regenerative agriculture and all of these these relatively new arguments that have sprung up in the past few years but now dominating the narrative they are one such narrative is ultra processed yeah. equals mega unhealthy and so you know you picture a street you walk on uh, along the, the sidewalk and you have a conversation with the average person and you say what do you think of vegan food and they say oh it's terribly processed it's very unhealthy i've heard and you say, where did you hear that? And then they say, oh, the Daily Mail yes, or, yes, <laughs> or the Sun. Yeah. And, you know, and there's one thing that a lot of these uh, media outlets have in common is they're of, often connected to super spreaders, people who, uh, you know, that's what I like to, we like to call them in the misinformation world, people who are prone to spreading the large, largest amounts of misinformation. People like Piers Morgan, who is very good at arguing points, a lot of them completely invalid. The Greg's lady has apparently oh, turned up. Here we are. <laughs> here are the Greg's vegan sausage rolls, even though they're not made of sausage. Uh, they're made of fake, fake sausage. It's gastronomic appropriation. Oh, we've oh, bumped into the Morgan's meat stand. The vegan sausage rolls have hit Morgan's meat parlor. There we are. Clearly a bit of a bust Let me try up. one of these things, right? These, I mean, they look... Are these the, what are these? The sausages or the vegan ones? What these are, are the vegan ones. Yeah. Vegan ones? So you yeah. can barely tell the difference. I can tell. I mean, they, they stink, right? No, for one. They're delicious. Right? They're delicious, actually. Because they've got the same seasoning. Ooh, God. I like them. They've got nice crisp oh. pastry. Yeah. The vegetarian sausage is nicely flavoured. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a good look, Piers. Oh, my God. I would eat Why that. Why would anyone eat mm. this? Because it's really tasty. It's yeah. Because everyone goes to Greg's to be healthy, right? Seriously. And by the way, while we're at it, we got vegan Happy Meals at McDonald's because everyone goes to McDonald's to be healthy, don't they? Right? Mm. Rather than go there, have a Big Mac and stuff your face with large fries. And now we got, oh, good old pizzas. Right? They're all, Pizza Hut's gone vegan too because we all go to get a pizza to lose weight and be healthy. What are the, this is complete gastronomic appropriation, right? In France, They've now banned all vegetarian and vegan products from using meat phraseology. They can't call fake veggie stuff uh, meat labels like a sausage roll. Because sausage roll is meat, right? And we should do that here. It's a complete con. Well, I know, you may do that. It's a complete con. He's a bit of an exception, I think, because I don't know whether he really believes the things that he argues. Right. I think that he likes to make these points because he's a shock jock, as they say. He's a populist. He likes to create controversy. But take ultra process, for example. Trouble with conversation and knowledge is that there is so much nuance in facts and terms and science and nutrition. And social media has re reduces everything down to a few characters in a comment section. Yeah. And I think what it's doing is it's priming human society to process information in tiny sound bites. And people become so lazy and so reluctant to really try to understand a subject from all sides. They will form an opinion based on a headline. You know, they'll read the Daily Mail. For example, last week, there was a headline that said, blow to veganism, nutrient found in meat and milk to protect many from many forms of cancer. Now, the average person will read the headline, a couple of the, you know, the line, the, the, the points underneath, which is obviously very damning to veganism. Do you think they'll read the article in detail, which talks about it being not as clear or no, they won't. They'll read the headline. They might read another headline. All it does is reinforce that belief and that view 
that, you know, a vegan diet is problematic, it's not good for health, and then they've seen something in another magazine. But then what we should be doing is going, okay, well, where, where's that research from? Who is the person who, who is the organization that funded that research? And in five minutes, I found that the research was funded by Pfizer. Pfizer has a major stake in animal agriculture. You know, it's in their interest for this type of study to be published and pushed. And it's such a gray area. But it all it does is it creates more bias within society. With the media being the way it is, I mean, you might it must you must find it incredibly frustrating that this is even allowed. How is there no level or sense of accountability to be able to, I guess, attack a lifestyle that is so good for the planet that it dramatically reduces our greenhouse gas emissions as individuals? You know, it protects rivers, it protects forests. It's <laughs> there's just so much good that can come from people switching to a plant-based diet. Yet the media seems to be dragging us down a very dark alley. How do we? combat these organizations how do we you know I, I can understand the conversations we can do one-to-one and we'll we'll get onto the book in a sec but i think like for me as part of my work which i'll be doing in the new year is is tackling misinformation directly what are the channels that we should be using to to challenge these narratives you know can we as individuals challenge them do we have the power to do that well i suppose the counterbalance to some of the some of the ideas about media now is that we're in a situation where I suppose we do have access to an opposing perspective. If you go back 30, 40 years, even longer, people got their information from newspapers, uh, from the TV, but there wasn't necessarily a way to fact check that. So we, at least we do live in an age now where we have somewhat of an ability to fact check that we can find the source material. We don't have to purchase a scientific journal to find it in the journal. We can go online and access it often for free through um, public access websites and such. So it's, in a way, yes, it's scary how these these headlines run, but they've always been that way. It's just at least now we have somewhat of an inclination that we should fact check things. But I think part of the problem is this this idea of um, critical reflection. We need to empower people to want to do that. Yes. But then you have to create scientific literacy in people. People have to be taught how to read Media papers, literacy, right? Media literacy as well. So there are all of these complex things which were not taught very well in schools, if at all in schools. And then we have to empower people to not only learn how to do some of these things, but then want to do these things. And then want to do these things with these articles, which they want to be true and don't necessarily want to have debunked for them. So there are so many roadblocks in the way to getting people to go, oh, this is a bit of a clickbait headline. Let me read the full article. Now let me see if there's, there's, there's other forms of reporting going on. And now let's, let me see what the scientific study says. And now let me read it. Now let me understand it. Now let me draw my own conclusions. It, it becomes heavy and a heavy task for people that are, are low on time, low on desire in this situation. And so that, then that means that the responsibility is placed somewhat on us to kind of not, not play the same game because we don't want to be reductive and create headlines that do the same thing. We don't want to manipulate people in a way that's reductive. But we also have to play a similar game, which is we need to grab people's attention. We need to get this information in front of them as simply as possible. And we have to do so in a way that makes them realize that, well, it makes them think differently about the choices they've made previously. And so I think the problem with modern day media is this need for clickbait, the need for advertising revenue, because it is a race to the bottom of who can get the most clicks, who can get the advertiser revenue in. And to do that, you need more sensationalist headlines. You need more clicks. So you don't want people necessarily lingering on one article. You want them clicking on five, six, seven, eight articles. So you, you're incentivizing people to have high click-through rates, to engage with content in a different way. 
as before when people bought newspapers they wanted to read them and, and and absorb that it's different now and i think that's when it becomes scary it really is i feel like it's becoming a bit of a war because you want us to eat false meat not real meat so if i said to you look here's a cabbage but it's a false cabbage how would you feel about that firstly you don't have to eat plant-based alternatives if you don't want to just eat whole plant foods instead the reason that we have these plant-based alternatives is because they're a more ethical decision so if i eat vegan bacon vegan sausage what that means is i'm no longer paying for animals to be mutilated for why do they call it bacon and sausage it's not is it why do they call it vegan sausage and vegan well, bacon? sausage refers to the shape it's, it's not yeah exactly but it's cylindrical but, shape but, but isn't that conning people you know if you no, say this is a vegan sausage. sausage it's not a vegan sausage but it's is a meat-free sausage so when people okay. see it they go that is a sausage made well, from something that isn't from, from uh, an animal uh, you. you know it's a war on the vegan and plant-based lifestyle but it, and it's all you know, it's all orientated around money, commercial incentive. These companies and industries are multi-billion dollar industries, billion pound industries, whose you know, entire function exists to you know, use animals, consume animals, and and keep you know society you know functioning in the same way it is now. Uh, and obviously, we are a huge threat. And any kind of opportunity to to I guess, attack us, they take it. Yeah. You know, Heather Mills' business, 30 years, uh, it's been producing plant-based and vegan products. Uh, unfortunately, she recently went into liquidation and the media coverage, I was analysing it this week, was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, the more left-leaning media, the more liberal media is more respectful. It focuses on the facts and it focuses on what's happened. It talks about potential reasons, whereas the more right-leaning media is is uh, going for the jugular. Yeah, talking about the end of veganism. Yes. you know, you know the one of the the queen the queen bees of veganism has fallen. You know, these kind of very aggressive language, using it as an opportunity to drive further bias into society and and show people oh look you see we were right all along that this yeah. vegan fad is coming to an end never mind the fact that there's more vegans today than there's ever been and more people eating plant-based diets and just because people can't afford to buy plant-based meats you know and let's talk about subsidies for a sec if you go into a supermarket and you pick up a back pack of um, pork bacon it's about six british pounds per kilogram vegan bacon is 29 pounds per kilogram right it's not a level playing field no. You know, so when the industry, meat industry goes, oh, look, you know, veganism is failing because plant-based products are failing. What about Brexit? What about, you know, economic downturn, you know, COVID? All these things have affected the economic system, the machine of our country. Yeah. And to point a finger at, you know, some failing plant-based brands and say, oh, veganism is failing. It's misdirected, isn't it? It's yeah. a completely cloaked attempt to to derail the the support in the movement isn't it absolutely i mean it is it's i think when people view veganism as being about certain plant-based brands yeah it overlooks what veganism is about and, and also overlooks the fact i mean I don't, I don't know about yourself but i don't really eat many alternatives yeah. i don't i don't buy vegan bacon very rarely i don't i don't eat many beyond burgers and i think a lot of vegans don't no, you know because don't. as vegans we we I mean, a lot of us try to eat kind of whole foods, plant-based. So, you know, the sales of fruits and vegetables don't determine the popularity of veganism and, and, and neither do the sales of Beyond Burgers. And I think, I think it is a very comfortable narrative for certain media outlets to run with. Oh, well, look, a couple of plant-based companies aren't doing so well. A couple have gone into administration. But there's also a diversification of the market. I mean, I hate to say it, but some of these products aren't very good and they shouldn't be being sold because they're not up to the standard that we we need them to be and that they should be. And I think there's a complacency within some plant-based companies to think, well, vegans will buy them. And I think that there is now a, a realization that with the increasing competition and the increasing need for these products to develop, some of these companies will fall to the wayside.
side. And that isn't inherently a bad thing. It's just the market changing and evolving and hopefully getting better. But I think one of the things you discussed previously, which is important, is this isn't just an issue in terms of the things we've discussed. It's part of the culture wars problem now. And I think that when you look at how so many social issues have now been reduced to just these monologues on late night TV or the war on, on woke, the war on woke and how we've just exactly we've reduced important social issues to just these reductive arguments that are, are more about drawing laughs and kind of finger pointing than they are about having meaningful debates. It, it's no wonder. It's all a distraction, isn't it? All a distraction. Yeah. But then you've got to look at well, what are the reasons behind this? And you think about, well, look what's happened in the Netherlands recently. You know, this far-right politician being voted in for the first time. He's been on the, the outskirts of politics for, for decades, or at least the time that he's been involved. And now all of a sudden, he's won the most votes in, in, in a Dutch election, a country which we normally view as being fairly progressive, right? And then we think about why. was well, because of these environmental measures about reducing animal farming to, you know, bring the nitrogen crisis in line. And you see that actually there's this huge right-wing pushback and there's this war on woke, so to speak, because it's attacking certain progressive values that we all need. And if you look at the sort of the left and, and right breakdown and demographic breakdown, the US is another prime example. When you look at the popular vote, the left-leaning party, which isn't left-leaning enough, of course, but the left-leaning party always wins the popular vote, or at least has in, in more recent elections. And yet the, the times that they actually win the White House are, are not necessarily in alignment with that. And it's because there's a system that's set up to try and weaponize these ideas, which many people in society don't disagree with. And actually the majority of people tend to agree with, but they're weaponized in such a way as to create division so that these right-wing parties and right-wing outlets stay relevant in the world where actually demographically in many countries, they're becoming increasingly irrelevant. How do we how do we get past that? Well, I suppose we have to turn our back on these organizations and challenge them where we can. But then the problem is they feed into this narrative in such an effective way they that they, they begin to overstate their importance and they begin to seem more powerful and influential than they, than they ought to be. And that becomes a really dangerous problem because we have a breakdown not just of social ideas, but of political conversation. And now all of a sudden we have politicians like Suella Braverman when she was in office who are appealing to a form of you know, political conversation, which is so toxic, but also is divisive and divisive in a way that the British public and indeed many publics in many countries aren't even asking for. But we're trapped in this system, this race to the bottom and veganism, unfortunately, has been enveloped within this culture wars race to the bottom and is now part of the woke agenda, part of the environmental agenda to limit freedoms and rights and plant-based meat. Well, that's going to kill you and feminize you. And it's been run by big ag and they want Bill to- Bill Gates. Build, oh gosh, you don't you get me started on poor Bill. You know, it's just, it's endless. <laughs> Isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because this playbook is being used by politicians in all different areas. You know, in the United States, you know, right-wing politicians are using, uh, are targeting, you know, gay people and trans people and drag queens, and using them as the, you know, the boogeyman, the the othering the, of these people as a, as a distracting mechanism from some of the core issues. You mentioned Cyrilla Braverman. It's so interesting because she's there, you know, banging the drum for these big issues that she feels are so important. Most people in this country are just trying to feed their children. Right. They're just trying to heat their homes. They're concerned about their children's education. They don't want to be getting into these kind of political conversations about who and who should and shouldn't be coming into this country. They just want to survive, you know, and I guess it's the politics of fear, isn't it? Yeah. And going back to my point about inception is so my my kind of my uh, example of inception is so fascinating because the human mind is is protected it protects its core beliefs in a very kind of biomechanical way. We um, have a, a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. It triggers you know in the flight fight or flight 
process. But when we feel fear, when a politician is talking about, you know, people coming to our country and they're going to come and invade our country and, you know, the, the drag queens are coming for our children, it creates fear in the population. And when a person's neuropronephron levels increase and they feel fear, they actually become more narrow-minded. Right. And people stick to what they know and they stick to those core beliefs and they're, more, they're less likely to try something new. So what's interesting when you said about being and veganism being enveloped by all of this, it's, it's by design, in my opinion. You know, they want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain their control and their power. And how do they do that? They create fear. Mm. They create this idea that vegans are coming for your health. Vegans are coming for your masculinity. Vegans are coming for your business. You know, there's all these different things. Vegans are yeah. coming to, you know, change the world in, in a way that, you know, is going to be unrecognizable. They're cutting down all the, the rainforests. There's just, yeah, there's just so much. It is. And I, and, and I, almost it's not even as simple as that because I wish it was just a simple case of, well, here are the bad guys, here are the bad elements. Mm -hmm. Those are the people we're against. But then the problem with veganism, and it's one of the things I referenced right at the start of the book, is it's one of the few issues which is capable of annoying everyone. You know, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, you know, the far left, the progressive left, all of these people find reasons to, to turn their back on veganism. And, and it's not even that it's divided down political lines, because it's one of the few issues that people, you know, irrespective of political belief can all get behind and and work together to try and, you know, um, stop. It's like, oh God, I can't even rely on, on, on progressive people because they're going to tell me True. that I'm anti-indigenous and colonialist. Yeah. And well, that's an interesting one. That came up, that came up in, a, in a video with Klaus at COP28. This young person came up to Klaus and said that veganism is, and let's start there with, one, with an, an argument. Veganism is erasing indigenous people. How is that possible? How could it be erasing indigenous, indigenous people when, you know, it's been a part of people's lives for thousands of years to eat in this way. Well, I think people have this this false belief that if, if you if you perceive vegans as being kind of judgmental and forceful, that means that what we're, what what our main aim is to do is to, is to march into the Amazon and force all the indigenous people there, or march into the you know into Canada or places in the U.S. and force everyone there to be vegan, and we're going to you know absolutely condemn anyone who doesn't, and it, and it removes any of the nuance and it removes individual agency in this conversation and it also overlooks the fact that animal farming is actually a direct threat to indigenous cultures all around the world i mean when you look at deforestation rates when you look at biodiversity loss when you look at all of these issues it, it's the number one driver of these things and so if you're thinking about indigenous people in in south america for example or in parts of the world where these issues are particularly pertinent the idea that vegans would be anti-indigenous is is incredibly ironic and actually when you even the fishing industry and you look at commercial fishing vessels that represent fishing companies in the eu the uk russia china a lot of these these fishing vessels are using slave labor mm. using debt bondage you mean the big industrial aqua aquaculture kind of industries yeah aquaculture yeah. but also the wild fishing as well these big trawlers that use slave labor and, and breach international laws and they're doing that often with indigenous communities or at least in communities that are, are far more impoverished than than the nations that benefit from this exploitation and i think that what people have to realize is that vegans we understand that the world isn't simple it's not all black and white not everyone can be vegan right now not everyone has the the privilege that we do certainly most likely everyone listening has to be vegan but that doesn't change the fact that those of us who can should and veganism isn't about going around the world and and forcing people to live in a way that they can't it's about encouraging those of us who can to do so which will actually bring significant environmental gains and even human rights gains which will not only benefit us in in, in more highly developed nations or high income nations i should say but will also help indigenous communities around the world whose 
ability to feed themselves has been destroyed, who are actually being murdered by these big ag companies and deforesting companies who have been murdered trying to protect their land and murdered in the interests of predominantly agricultural interests. If we can't agree on the facts around what would be beneficial in this regard, I think that it's concerning because vegans make up a very small fraction of the population. And the idea that we're the biggest enemy of indigenous people overlooks firstly what we represent and secondly what would be gained from a transition to a plant-based food system. It's a nice soundbite, isn't it, of veganism is erasing indigenous yeah. people. But when, as we talked about before, the nuance and the complexity of this, when you dive in and you really look at it, you really go into all the information, you know, it's, 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 it's painfully obvious that a plant-based diet would dramatically reduce, as you say, the slave labor and the effects on indigenous people and also land use. You know, animal agriculture is the major driver of deforestation and habitat loss, yeah. of which many indigenous peoples live in harmony with these creatures. And Amazon is certainly a place that is rapidly disappearing. There's also that. There's also the point as well that um, we, we have to be careful as, as people who don't belong to indigenous cultures not to belittle the capabilities of indigenous people. And I think part of the argument, part of the, the, this argument that upsets me is when you find people who aren't indigenous making claims that, well, indigenous people shouldn't have to engage in these conversations. They should be, you know, above these conversations, or at least not above them, but they shouldn't be considered within them. And I think that's belittling the capability of indigenous people to also engage with complex moral issues. They have just that's as much ability point. to intellectually engage with them as we do. And so the idea that they should be sheltered from it, I think, speaks to kind of a, a, a white patronization almost. And I think that if we want to create an equitable food system and an equitable version of the world, that's a world where we all answer these questions in situations where they're pertinent and apt for us to answer. And, I, and it pains me greatly when progressives on the left belittle minorities or people who historically have had hard done to them or oppression inflicted upon them because we don't have to overlook the hardships that have been inflicted on people to recognize that together we can work together to create a better world. But ultimately, sometimes that involves asking difficult questions of all of us, all of us who are capable of answering them. Yeah, that's a very good point. One of my other top favorites is crop deaths. Yeah. <laughs> Hear this in the comments section of Plant Based News almost on a daily basis. Well, vegans kill more animals than meat eaters do. That's obviously ridiculous, but what's your take on that? And why does it seem to come up over and over again? Or because it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful argument for people to use. You know, if you think that animals matter morally and we should, we should factor them into our ethical decision-making, the idea behind veganism becomes very hard to oppose from an ethical position, unless, of course, vegans cause more harm, in which case, brilliant, the answer's there right in front of us. And so I think the reason people love this is because it's an answer to a question which historically has been impossible to, to answer. So now all of a sudden people can go, well, actually, what about the, uh, the mice and the birds and, and all the animals who are killed to produce crops who actually result in more harm? It's a funny thing, and I, I say this towards the beginning of the book as well, which is I almost wish that all these arguments against veganism were true, right? Because how much easier would it be if we were already eating the food that aligned with everything that we want? You know, how much easier would it be if animal farming was sustainable, was more ethical, was healthier? I could, you know, just go, oh, job done, right? We're, we're already there. I can I can rest on my laurels and you know, sadly think of something else to, to try and try and get rid of. But there is this notion, I suppose, where it's easy again to believe in something that tells us what we want to believe, even if that doesn't necessarily fit reality. And the crop deaths one stems from a couple of pieces of misinformation, which was looking specifically at the, the number of animals being killed to produce crops. But, but what it overlooks, firstly, is that the vast majority of crops worldwide are, are fed to farmed animals, right? So if you're looking at crop deaths, more animals are killed for crop deaths for animal feed than human food, because 
far more animal feed is produced. Then there's land use. There's the species extinction, the biodiversity loss, the deforestation we've discussed, and all of the loss of animals that occurs through the destruction of this land. But then even in grass-fed systems, not only do you have the destruction of that land, the deforestation to create pasture lands, but you also have the fact that these animals use far more land than producing crops. And so if we really cared about animals and, and species and biodiversity, the best answer is a plant-based food system because it's more efficient, meaning we use less land to produce more foods. And it also allows us to the ability to rewild huge areas of land, which would increase biodiversity and increase the numbers of, of, of wild animals. So the argument falls apart, but it's a very enticing argument because if you're a meat eater, who wouldn't want to believe that that was more ethical? We, we all would if we, you know, I, I would have done when I used to eat meat. I'd love to have thought, actually, this is the ethical position. So I, I understand why people parrot it, but it is um, totally, totally <laughs> illogical. It just makes sense to me because obviously, you know, when you visualize what's going on as a, as a, as a non-vegan, I guess when you visualize, you imagine vegans eating plants and you imagine, you know, there's a lot of people in the world. What if we all ate plants? It'd be just fields of plants and all these animals dying. I guess it's a, for me, it's a, it, it, it's, it's in all in the storytelling, because as we talked about before, when you throw facts and figures at people, they don't get it. And I think this is the importance of like framing our conversations and helping people come to the point through, through well, good science communication, which is what you do. And that's what this book is about. On the topic of land use, another one that pops up a lot is uh, grass-fed beef, regenerative agriculture. You know, yes, factory farming is horrendous. And uh, we acknowledge that, say many non-vegans, but they say we should be eating grass-fed beef. We should be using animal agricultural uh, practices because they are good for the soil. They nourish the, you know, they, they capture carbon. We have to use animals. What do you say to the Regen Ag crew who are pushing their narrative, suggesting that it's the, the answer to all our meat concerns? Yeah. I mean, even just related to the point we were just making, this kind of grass-fed term, it's really hard for people to understand what that means. You know, even in grass-fed systems, animals can be fed harvested silage and, you know, and, and grasses that are dried and turned into winter feed. And so we, we often overlook just the scale of, of food production for animals, the amount of pastureland, the amount of grassland that's currently used. And we often overlook what, what the processes are, you know, what the processes are to produce all of that. And the idea of Regen Ag is interesting. And what I find quite fascinating is every form of animal farming is touted as being the best. You know, factory farmers don't think that what they're doing is unethical and unsustainable. They say the reason they keep, you know, mother pigs in farrowing crates is to protect their babies and to protect them, right? Everyone has a justification for what they do. And it's interesting how the farmers unions and the farmers lobby groups and the farming organizations also have messaging that completely contradicts one another. You know, on the one hand, we're told by certain regen farmers that this is the best way. And then we have the NFU propping up factory farming and factory farmers telling us the opposite. And I, I find it quite telling that not even the industry itself can get all on the same page. Because let's, let's just say, for example, that regen ag was, was everything that it's promised to be. Well, why aren't we hearing from the farmers' unions and the farmers' lobby groups that factory farmers should be transitioning away from factory farming into that? Why are we finding more intensification and actually these lobby groups lobbying for more intensification? Why is it that the opposite isn't happening? So I think it's weird that they don't get on the same page with the messaging. They, they should be if, it's, if, if that's what the science is showing. So why don't they? You know, they all have their different botched science to draw from and overlook what the real science is saying. And the other thing is to say, well, why hasn't this been spoken about by the scientific community? When we have these huge meta-analyses that are produced analyzing the impact of farming, why do they always say the same thing, which is that red meat's the most environmentally destructive form of farming? 
why is it that it's only the animal farming industries that talk about this meaningfully? Why is it not discussed by the leading scientific and environmental organizations around the world? Why are they on the same page about needing to reduce or as we would like eliminate red meat production, but then these farmers who financially benefit from these industries are the opposite? And I think what we have to recognize is there are these great sustainability buzzwords that exist. And it used to be grass-fed, used to be organic, and now regenerative is this new big one. But what does that mean? What, 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 do, what does the legislation say about what regenerative agriculture has to look like? Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't exist. There are no guidelines. There are no laws. There are no regulations saying this equals regenerative, this doesn't. And so all of these grass-fed farmers who now call themselves regenerative, what are they doing differently? So they've been grass-fed farmers for decades. Their, their, their family members were grass-fed farmers, but now they call themselves regenerative agricultural farmers. And they're doing the exact same natural, thing. Because it doesn't it? Right. And I think it's all about marketing. It's all marketing. It's all buzzword sustainability marketing, and it's greenwashing, isn't it? And I think the main, the, the two main pillars around it are obviously to do with carbon sequestration. So the idea that grazing animals allows us to offset the emissions produced by these animals. That's one big argument. And the second is, is also related to, you know, things like the biodiversity gains, the removal of factory farming, the, the reduction in pesticides and fertilizers. But when you look at, say, for example, the, the carbon capture gains of farming, there's no scientific evidence that isn't funded by meat and dairy or wasn't funded by a consultancy firm that points to the evidence showing that grazing animals can offset their emissions. It, it doesn't. Farming animals are net contributors to the greenhouse gas problem that we currently face. And even though some carbon can be stored in the soil when you graze animals, this carbon it doesn't offset the emissions produced by these animals. And also, the carbon that could be stored through rewilding, through reforesting, through restoring these areas of farmland is far higher than the carbon that could be stored. And why are we trying to offset emissions that we don't need to produce in the first place? This offsetting conversation is really dangerous at the moment. You have airlines talking about it. You have companies talking about it. Well, we're kicking offsets. the can down the road, right? And and it, and it's it's nonsense yeah. because a lot of these offsetting programs don't even work. And actually, regenerative agriculture is another example of an offsetting program that doesn't work. Even DEFRA, the UK government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, who are ex very very much pro agriculture, have come out and said that the ability for soil carbon sequestration to occur in the UK at the levels that have been described doesn't make sense. You know, there's no evidence to suggest that could happen. So firstly, regenerative is a buzzword. Secondly, the claims about carbon storage are way overinflated. And in the US, there's one farm, white oak pastures. And this is touted as like the, the poster child for regenerative agriculture. Well, the claim that they made about being able to store more carbon than is produced came from a study that they funded. They paid a consultancy firm to create this study for them. And now they say, look, we are carbon negative. That's not true. And actually another study was done into them, which again, didn't use the proper methodology it should have done, but even then showed that actually, no, they are still producing net emissions. And they use two and a half times more land than the conventional beef farm. So the poster child for sustainable agriculture is only viewed that way because of a, a, a study that they funded themselves. And they use two and a half times more land to produce the same amount of meat as a conventional beef farm. So that, that reduces the carbon opportunity or the carbon potential of that land. Basically, in other words, we want to increase efficiency of producing food, obviously in a sustainable way. But in, in, in terms of increasing efficiency, we are, allow, we are allow, able to free up land, which we can rewild. And, and what stores more carbon? Forests right. or grazing pastures? Grazing pastures with animals that produce methane. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's all to keep meat relevant. It's all to maintain the reputation of meat, isn't it? This greenwashing, this ethics washing. It's fascinating, isn't it? What what I really question is like who's holding them accountable? Right. Who is there other than, you know, a very small group of people in the vegan advocate uh, and plant-based world 
who is holding them accountable? Are there any government organizations holding these individuals accountable and really, I guess, challenging them for their, in quotes, studies and their self funded narratives it's absolutely terrifying it sometimes i'm just like questioning my yeah. sanity you know. and also and i think there is an important point that mm. the regenerative agricultural or at least animal farming um regenerative agricultural farmers what what they make the, the claim or a claim that they make sorry is that obviously plant farming has environmental harms mm. and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't kid ourselves around the bush you know there are certain environmental problems related to plant farming the overuse of of fertilizers being one, the pesticides, herbicides. So it's not that plant farming is perfect, but here's what I find really important. The studies that are being conducted now showing that plant-based farming is more sustainable are done based on how plant-based farming is. But plant-based farming can also get more sustainable. We can switch to veganic forms of farming where we reduce um, certain fertilizer use, where we reduce the use of pesticides and, and these, these other factors which do have environmental problems. So plant-based farming is already more sustainable, but we can make plant-based farming more sustainable than it is. But again, it's a bit of a red herring. People go, well, you know, the, those crops are sprayed with this and we have to use fertilizers for that. And it's like, well, well, that's true, but that doesn't change the fact that animal farming is far worse. All it does is it points us in the direction of saying, oh, hang on a minute, let's make our plant-based farming more sustainable as well, which we can do and, and which certain um, veganic farmers like Tolhurst Organic and, and other ones around the world are showing us that we can do. And that's exciting because not only is eating plants more sustainable now, but we can make it even more sustainable in the future. That's where this conversation excites me because there is so much potential for us to do even better. And I think that's that's great. Yeah. yeah. It's showing people the potential as well and showing them that another world is possible. But I do think that one of the things we struggle to get past is people love to eat meat. Yeah. And that's why vegan meats were created, because people like the taste and the mouthfeel of these types of foods. But you know, this war on ultra-processed has been so successful over the last few years. It's really ramped up over the last couple of years where this has been focused on plant-based meats are unhealthy because look at the 29 different ingredients. Never mind the fact that 29 of those, 28 of those ingredients are all just made from plants. Take, take methyl cellulose, for example. Yeah. It's just plant cellulose. It's methylated plant cellulose. Yeah. And Animal Ag will, you know, in, especially in the US, they'll create a narrative that this is... Uh, a, a mystery ingredient that's found in laxatives and you know yeah they don't say vegan burgers are going to give you laxative effects but that's what they're suggesting right and they create this fear i saw uh, you know a few years ago i saw this meme that had like a beef burger on one side and it said ingredients beef yeah. and then a vegan burger and it had like all the 29 different ingredients i mean in the uk there's a lot less we have cleaner labels in the uk we have a lot less preservatives and additives how do we combat that as a, as as um advocates i guess the argument is vegan burgers vegan meats are unhealthy animal meat is healthy because it's natural yeah well i, I sometimes hear this and it, this, this phrase, don't eat anything that you can't pronounce. Right. Oh, so just about all the different vitamins and minerals that we need to be healthy. If you look at the names of these vitamins, some of them are, you know, you look at them and go, oh my goodness, how do I break this one down? Cyanocobalamin. Right, exactly. Or alpha linolenic acid, you know, and the, the, these are essential vitamins yeah. and minerals that we yeah, need. Yeah. So the idea that we, sh if we can't pronounce something, we shouldn't consume it is, is yeah. ridiculous. And it is frustrating. Now, look, don't get me wrong. We, we shouldn't say that plant-based alternatives are, are, you know, are, are objectively healthy. And we shouldn't make the claim that they should try to get healthier you know we should try and make food as healthy as possible within obviously within the boundaries that we have because the problem with plant-based alternatives is they get beaten up twice they get beaten up for not tasting like animal products mm. and they get beaten up for not being healthy so there's this this weird situation where a, a you know a, a, a plant-based alternative burger is criticized for not being as healthy as a chickpea and mushroom 
you know, quinoa disc. stew. Yeah, disc. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. It's criticized for not being as healthy as that. Mm. But the reason for that is because they want to make it taste and, you know, replicate meat. And then, you know, they do that and they get criticized for not being healthy or, or they're healthy and get, get, get criticized for not replicating meat. Look, don't get me wrong. I do think that plant-based alternatives should strive to be healthier where, where they can, reducing salt levels, increasing fiber, increasing, um, you know, the nutrition overall. An interesting thing came up from the WHO recently, I think a couple of weeks ago now, at the time that we're recording, and it was looking at different processed foods. And it said of all the different processed foods that you can get, processed meat's the worst, you know? And actually processed plant-based alternatives are among the healthiest processed foods that you can consume. Now, obviously they're not the healthiest foods. They're not, they're not whole plant foods, but the idea that they're the most unhealthy foods you can consume is, is completely a product of, of misinformation. And it it's troubling how now this narrative is emerging that red meat is the ultimate food. Just, I've heard it. Red meat is a superfood, is, is what I've been hearing. And haven't you heard all, all, oh, the, all of the research, the hundreds of studies showing that red meat is correlated with increased heart disease, increased type 2 diabetes risk, increase of colon cancer, all of these things. No, they're all wrong, completely wrong, because there was a study three or four years ago now, which was funded by organizations with links to, to the meat industry and was carried out by a you know a hired scientist who's done work for the sugar industry and done work for other nefarious industries. Oh, well, he did a study that said actually it wasn't true. So now all of a sudden, all of this research, these hundreds of different studies uh, are completely invalidated and false because of this one guy called Bradley Johnson who did this one study that apparently shows us that red meat isn't even unhealthy for us, right? So... In answer to your question, which I've kind of forgotten a little bit, but uh, about plant-based alternatives, I, look, I, I think that we just have to be we just have to be more critical thinkers, and we have to think. Look, there may be a long list of ingredients, but yeah. the important thing is what are those ingredients? And then beef overlooks the fact that within beef there are so many different elements to it, from the heme to the saturated fat, the cholesterol, hormones, the, exactly the hormones, bovine viruses. Well, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. The hundred percent beef on BSC as well, you know, something like that. So it it is weird how again reductively we label things and i saw a, a kind of a funny counterpoint to that and it, was, it had a beyond burger and it said 100 beyond meat and then it had beef and it listed all the different components found within beef and um I thought, so funny it's funny yeah. i mean it's the appeal to nature fallacy isn't it yeah that because something appears natural mm. it means that it's good for you well yeah. snake poison is natural yeah. it's not good for you yes. <laughs> so it's anthrax isn't it you know there's plenty of natural things that god forbid we don't want yeah. to have around and, us and also this idea it's you see it a lot as well oh it's made of chemicals yeah. well honey you are made of chemicals <laughs> yeah. if you broke down the human body there would be thousands of different chemicals that you're made up of yeah you know including some things you've never heard of and you probably couldn't pronounce either right yeah so this idea that just because you can't pronounce it i love that just because you can't pronounce it doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat it everything yeah. is made of chemicals yeah george mombio did this thing and it was i think it was in response to michael pollan and michael pollan says don't eat anything that your grandma wouldn't have eaten or something yeah. And George Mommy was like listing like bananas and all these different foods that, you know, a hundred years ago, however long he's referencing when he's his great grand or whatever, people didn't have access to. Oh, so we shouldn't eat any of those foods. We should have like, you know, basically the foods that we could have grown in England at that time when we had less food accessibility and availability. There's all of these romanticized ideals of, of going back to the past, of how agriculture used to be, how food production used to be. It used to be so holistic and wonderful and, and idealistic and Firstly, that, that was never the case. But secondly, it overlooks the fact that, well, well, actually, that's not really what's important to this conversation. I think there is this hijacking that's gone on now around nutrition um, and around what it means to be healthy and how to get nutrition. And I think that there is this strange 
I suppose it's I suppose it's natural. Veganism kind of had a bit of a free reign for a few years. We had a, we had a little good, you know, 2016 to 2019. I feel like with some good years, you know, we're, it was the rise of veganism, the vegan boom, and then it was only natural that these industries would get their act together, find out what works, disseminate that information, and then the carnivore diet arises as kind of like um, you know a counterpoint to veganism. It's like the the other end, the extreme at the other end, so to speak, of just eating meat. It's like the ultimate, haha, let's take vegans down. We're only going to eat red meat and liver, you know, for example. So I. I think there is this natural ebb and flow that will occur. It's this kind of push and pull scenario where one thing happens, there's something that, that comes up to try and counterbalance that. And I guess that's part of societal progression happening. But more increasingly, we've seen this kind of delve into the conspiracy world, you know, and plant-based food and vegans and have become very much tied in, in some minds, to this conspiratorial way of thinking. Yeah. And that is when it, it transcends beyond rationality. How has that happened? How has eating plants and saving animals become embedded in this idea that there's a deep state that's trying to feminize us all? And what's your theories on like where that comes from? Who is propagating this notion that eating plants is some kind of demonic act or something, you know? If we go back like, you know, 50, 60 years, a lot of, you know, the vegan family on the BBC and, you know, all these magazine articles, it's written in such positive ways and people really shine a good light on people living and eating this way. But in the last, like, you know, few decades, there has been a total, is it just the internet? Is it these dark rabbit warrens on the internet where people make stuff up just for fun? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the internet definitely has a, mm. has a, a huge role in this. It's really hard to pinpoint exactly where it comes from, I think. But I think a lot of the a lot of the idea around it is tied in with kind of traditional, old-fashioned, harking back to the way with, you know, things used to be. And again, in the Netherlands, there was a kind of a big conspiracy around the whole removal of 30, you know a thirty percent reduction in in ruminant animals and and red meat production it was kind of tied in with with another conspiracy around great replacement about getting an influx of refugees in, providing them places to live to throw off this this Western culture. There's a lot of overlap between different conspiratorial and and um, very dangerous far right ways of thinking. And I think that the reason the veganism has been tied in with that is because it is being viewed as kind of like an environmental progressive agenda. And I think that the tying of tying in of veganism with the environment has led it to becoming open to conspiracy ways of thinking, you know, the removal of rights, the links with the 15 minute city and the ultra low emission zones and how that's, you know, stamping good, honest working people into the dust to prioritize big companies that want to fill us with processed chemicals, blah, 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 blah. So it's hard to know exactly where it stems from, but I think it comes again through this, this, this perpetuation of the fear narrative, you know, oh, well, actually plants are harmful for you. They're filled with anti-nutrients and this is all a way to get you feminized. Phytates. And <laughs> phytates and oxalates and yeah, and it's a way to subjugate yeah. you. It's about powerlessness. And I think that a, a lot of conspiracy is about powerlessness. It's about making people feel like they're going to have control taken from their lives, that they're, they're going to have no agency, no authority. And I think this plant narrative is, is being put into that because historically we viewed meat as being affluence mm. and power and prosperity right. and plants. So you're taking that away from people exactly. by giving them vegetables. Exactly. You're taking away a symbol of power and affluence and agency and prosperity. So the counter to that is subjugation and fear and a, a lack of control. Interesting. You know? Elon Musk is known for many things, such as co-founding PayPal and Tesla, being the richest man in the world, building spaceships, and of course, for being the man who got ripped off when he bought Twitter. Sorry, being the man who saved free speech. 
But perhaps surprisingly, for all of his science-focused endeavors, Elon has some glaringly anti-science views and is engaged in some troubling anti-science behavior. Let's start with some low-hanging fruit, which according to Elon's own description of his diet, he should probably do as well. For example, Elon loves Diet Coke. It's actually his favorite drink. He once said, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are awesome. I don't care if drinking gallons of it shaves a bit of life off. Worth it. And on Joe Rogan, he stated, I'd rather eat tasty food and live a shorter life. Now, why do I raise this? After all, if he wants to be unhealthy, that's his prerogative, right? Well, the reason I raise it is because he told The Guardian, I tried being a vegetarian, but I don't think we're really designed to be vegetarians. Some of my best friends are vegetarians, even vegans, which is tricky when you're trying to go out for dinner. Firstly, when you're the world's richest man and have lived where Elon has and does, it's not tricky. But more importantly, not designed. Well, I actually agree with Elon that we're not designed to be vegetarian. After all, breastfeeding from an entirely different species certainly isn't what we are meant to do. In fact, it's creepy and weird to take part in interspecies breastfeeding. But come on, seriously, Elon, you can't actually be using this argument to try and justify why you continue eating animal products. Because I didn't realize that we have been designed to drink gallons of Diet Coke. And look, the truth is we can thrive on a plant-based diet, which if Elon really is a man of science, he very much needs to start accepting. What are some of the hardest arguments in here and also ones that you've encountered? Uh, obviously, we've talked about quite a few popular ones, but what are some of the most difficult ones that you've found to like really dissect? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at that question. There's, there's most challenging in terms of actually have some veracity to them. And I think those would be the practicality ones. Mm. And I think the only argument you can't really debunk is one where someone goes, hey, look, I'm single mother trying to raise a family living in a food desert and I don't really have the time and I don't have the money. Well, you know, I mean, my goodness, that's a fairly strong argument, you know, for a lot of people in that situation, you know, dependent on their personal situation, of course. So there are certain practicality issues, uh, maybe issues around someone who has um, a, a disability or has a cognitive impairment that maybe prohibits them. You know, those, those practicality issues. You mean you, people who, there's some people who get stuck on eating only certain foods. Exactly. And they battle to eat outside of those. Exactly. Right. You know, people who have a, a nuanced situation where their ability to make decisions regarding this particular choice is, is different than that of, of many other people. Those, those are the most challenging because, well, you know, sometimes people are in situations where their situation prohibits them from making certain decisions. But I think more to the point you were asking, I think anything that... That's a really good question. It's hard to say. I think that there are certain scientific questions that you kind of have to get your head around a little bit. There's this um, this this calculation called GWP star. It's about reevaluating how we view the impact of different greenhouse gases. And the animal farming industry love it because they think they can apply it to, to downplay the impact of the methane that they've produced historically and continue to produce. And I think things like that, sometimes you just got to take a bit of time to get your head around them, to research them, to well, what, why are they saying this? Complex what does this mean? claims require very complex answers. Yeah, yeah. And I, exactly. And I think mm -hmm. that f as an advocate, those ones can be the, the more challenging ones. I mean, what I always find quite satisfying is when it all kind of clicks together and you kind of begin to understand the concept and then you realize what they're saying and then you go, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I've loved that with some of these, these environmental arguments, the GWP star one, I, I, and it just clicks into place and you go, I see exactly what they've done there. Yeah. That's preposterous. Well, it's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? Yeah. This is often what, you know, um, agriculture and, well, industry does. A bunch of word salad that just creates misdirection and confusion. You know, doubt is our product and all that. Yeah, well, yeah. right, exactly. You Merchants know, of doubt. Yeah, that's the, that's the way in which we can 
maintain the status quo amongst society because if there's just enough doubt seeded in the minds of just enough people, we can, you know, we can sway people's ability or we can, we can, I guess, change people's, people's what feels like free will to be able to make honest and logical choices. But a lot, a lot of the time they're making those choices based on fear or based on a concern for their children's health or their own well-being because they've heard something about how vegan diets are dangerous or I'm not going to buy that vegan burger because I've heard it's got methyl cellulose, which is going to give me diarrhea. <laughs> you, know, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, these things are always being planted in people's minds. But just to summarize, how do people use this book? Because we see it, you know, as I said, it's, an, it's like an almanac. It's like all these different arguments. Should we be committing the whole thing to memory? Like, how do we, you know, because obviously, depending on what you do and how you how you advocate, some people do it online. Some, it'll, some people might just do it at work with friends and family. Some people might do it professionally like we do. There is so much to learn. How does one maintain all of that knowledge? Because there's a lot in this book. And there's obviously, as you say, there's so many different things. It's like playing a game of ping pong. Yeah. But less fun. Less fun. <laughs> exactly. How well, do we approach it? <laughs> I think you approach it in whatever way suits you best. I mean, the idea of the book is the, the first section is kind of discussing effective communication, trying to understand why people think and act the way that they do to try and, I think, give us a little bit of space to... The anatomy of an argument, right? Yes, yeah. in essence, yeah. And to also try and view things more objectively, to try and remove some of that emotional aspect to these conversations. I mean, emotion's very important, but to kind of view things a little bit more objectively so that when people say things that could be perceived hurtfully, we can kind of get a little bit of distance and protect ourselves. So it's all about trying to understand why people say the things they do, understanding the mechanisms that lead people down the paths they take, and then also some of the tips and techniques that make us more accomplished as communicators. So I think that that's an important place to start. But then after that, the book really opens up and you can kind of use it how you want, delve into the different arguments, the different people making these arguments. And really, I mean, I, I'd, I'd advise to read it all, obviously, but then take those bits that are most pertinent to you. You know, does your dad always make a claim about, you know, crap deaths? Or does your mother, you know, naturally worry that maybe you're going to be deficient in certain nutrients? You know, build it up so that you have the arguments that are most important for you, because it's, it's going to be really hard to remember it all. And the only reason that I can lock so much of this in is because I have to say it enough times, you know, and you, at a certain point you do enough talks that exactly the stats become a little bit in, in, infused in, mm. in your brain and you go to sleep thinking of 76% of agricultural land could be freed up. And how do you memorize it? Do you just write it all down or like, how do you commit it to memory other than speaking? Do you have any processes or practices? I, I'm, I, I'm not much of a, I, I guess, ironically, because we're talking about my book, I'm not much of a writer. I don't necessarily write things down. I don't make notes of things. Um, I probably should. I'm just not organized enough, to be honest <laughs> with you. I just find repetition of, of saying things. And um, I'm good at having long conversations with no one in particular in my head. You know, what would I say here? What would I say there? Or I'll have a debate with someone or I'll take part in an event. And afterwards, I'll, I'll think, you know, I'll think about oh, what should I have said differently? What could I have said then? And so it's kind of like a, an evolution in that sense. But for me, doing a lot of talks and presentations has just allowed me to really get this information nailed down, or at least, you know, what I perceive to be the most important aspects of it. We're never going to remember every data point, every number, every stat. I mean, God, you know, impossible. But take out the stuff that's most important for what you need and most important to the conversations that you have and, and use it as kind of a, a work workshopping book. Make notes, underline things, please pull out what you need. Just use it in a way that's most helpful for you, because obviously it's, it's a book that's meant to be read cover to cover. But within that, it's really given you free license to to delve into it to skip through it to do what you find most effective and then reference back to it whenever you need to yeah
Now it may come as a surprise to you to hear that growing up the prospect of actively seeking out diehard cowboys in the heartlands of Texas was never high on my list of priorities. However, after deciding that I wanted to have interesting conversations about veganism with people, all of a sudden chatting with the diehard cowboys became an altogether more intriguing idea. Yeah, you, you eat meat, huh? No, I don't. I'm and vegan. you're wearing a tag that says that the, the animal was killed. The tag reminds me of like the animal. Thank know, you. Right? Um, it's it's very kind of you. But, but the uh, the tag reminds me of what we do to animals. So while I can't say that Dallas-Fort Worth rates highly on my list of favorite places in the world, I can say that my experiences there, and indeed in all the other places my vegan advocacy has taken me to, have been invaluable in shaping who I am today and the type of advocate that I am as well. I'm very grateful to be able to say that in the years since I initially started talking about veganism, I've had the privilege of being able to discuss it face-to-face -face in front of tens of thousands of different people. These experiences have not only been illuminating in terms of understanding and hearing all the different arguments against veganism that exist, but have also been invaluable in allowing me to stress test my rebuttals and responses. These conversations have essentially presented me with an abundance of opportunities to become a better communicator and a more accomplished advocate. At the same time, I've also been immersed in the ever-growing body of scientific literature that discusses the issues related to our use of animals. I find myself constantly in awe of the incredible work and dedication being carried out by academics, data analysts, and scientists, while also being dismayed by the misinformation and disinformation that sadly spreads like wildfire. I have also had the great honor to meet so many wonderful vegans who have shared their experiences with me and whose stories have inspired me deeply. From people who have been vegan for decades to people who have just made the change, each person's experience being individual and unique, yet often with difficulties and hardships that have overlapped. Sadly, time after time, the vegans I meet tell me they struggle to effectively talk about veganism with the people in their life or say that they feel overwhelmed by all of the arguments that people use against veganism. So all of this brings me to my second book, How to Argue with a Meat Eater and Win Every Time. This is a book that has allowed me to bring together all of these different aspects of my work, drawing from all of these experiences and from everything that I have learned and I've had the privilege to be a part of so far. Just to touch lightly on a few solutions that are out there in the world. So uh, cellular agriculture, for those who don't know, is a process of which we can take cells from various animal tissues and grow meat. However, you know, it's been, I guess, as an industry, they're still very young and it still hasn't emerged into the main commercial scene. It's recently being banned in Italy. It's being banned potentially in Poland. And it will, if it's banned in four European countries, it will be banned across the whole of Europe. You know, terrific. Yeah. It, do you feel like it is a solution to ending animal agriculture? And there's obviously a lot of arguments to suggest that it's not natural cell-based meat. And so we shouldn't be eating it. You know, it's Frankensteinian. What are your thoughts on the kind of the move to ban it across Europe? Well, I mean, the first, the natural argument is nonsensical because agriculture is not natural. I mean, agriculture by its very design is, is, doesn't exist in the natural world. It's, it's a product of looking after seeds, raising animals, you know, domestication. It's, it's an unnatural process, especially nowadays. I mean, the animals we consume are selectively bred, domesticated animals who are often forcibly impregnated or at least put in certain reproductive scenarios that wouldn't necessarily be natural. I mean, the whole process is completely unnatural. We slaughter animals in slaughterhouses using mechanisms and using devices that wouldn't exist in the natural world and don't exist in the natural world. If, if you want to eat natural foods, then good luck, because it's going to be really hard to do that and also impossible on a population-wide scale. So we need an unnatural element to our food system because 
that's how we can produce enough food to feed everyone. So I think the whole idea that it's not natural, well, neither is so much medication we take, neither is the technology we use, neither are the homes that we rely on and the heating that we use. Oh my goodness, we live in an unnatural world and thank goodness we do because if we didn't... It would all be dead at 35. Right, if that, you know, from tooth, teeth infections and all sorts. Mm. So, I mean, we should all thank our stars that we don't live in a truly natural system because we have evolved beyond that and are far better for it. The thing about cell culture needs is, I think... Probably the reason there's so much pushback is because of its potential. If you can offer someone a food and it's the exact same thing that they've always liked, literally the same thing they've always liked, but this food doesn't involve all of that animal suffering. So by consuming this food, you've removed your participation in the biggest driver of animal suffering, cruelty and death that we humans partake in, the biggest driver. Not only that, but you're choosing a food which removes the biggest environmental problems related to our production of food. And on top of that, you're consuming a food that doesn't need any antibiotics, that doesn't increase the risk of a bird flu or swine flu influenza, you know, spillover event, because pig farming and chicken farming are the biggest drivers in the emergence of bird flu and swine flu, which could cause the next pandemic. So one food will choice- Will cause. Will cause, well, example, yeah, <laughs> things don't change. So one food choice that allows us to remove all the animal suffering and food that we, that we currently need to take part in, the environmental harm related to animal farming, the antibiotic use and influenza pandemic risk from it. And also it can be healthier because we can tweak nutrient levels. We have so much agency around what goes into that food. So we can also make it healthier for us. And you scale up, it can become cheaper. So now you have the same thing that has the same taste, the same flavor can be used in the same way and ticks the boxes of being better in every single one of the regards we've just discussed. Oh my goodness. And then all you have to do is go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's not natural because chickens are selectively bred to reach slaughter weight in six weeks anyway. That's not natural. Okay, brilliant. So we're on the same same level then. So now all of a sudden, why wouldn't you choose that? Why, why wouldn't you? The only reason you wouldn't is because you've either been fed lies about it, which hopefully we can combat, or because it's banned, right? And I think the animal farming industry is these lobby groups who are obviously lobbying the Italian government, who are, I mean, even with this new Polish government that that's far better than the one that, that, that just got voted out, it seems like maybe this isn't going to be you know, the positive happy ending that we as vegans want from it, from an agricultural perspective. You think, well, no wonder this is what they're campaigning for because they lose the battle in every conceivable way unless, of course, people don't have access to it because access is the only thing that would prohibit people from making that decision, you know, the lack of access. So it, it is worrying. I didn't know about the four the four countries thing. That's scary. It is scary, yeah. yeah. I guess this is where, you know, we where, you know, activism and campaigning comes in, you know, speaking your mind, sharing your thoughts with your politicians, writing to your your MPs, speaking to your local representatives. I think, you know, that's that's one thing that we need to see more of, I think, in our culture and our society really is empowering individuals with the idea that they can create change through their voice, through their letters, through their emails. Great change happen, can happen with just a single person taking an action. But I think in the, in the political world we have today, there is this sense of powerlessness, isn't there? That nothing's going to change. We're always going to be in charge. You know, no matter what you do, we have control and nothing could be further from the truth. People do have power. People do have agency, moral agency over ourselves unlike the animals yeah yeah so so in summary you know what's the kind of main thing you want people to take away from this book once they've kind of been through it how do you want people to feel having been through <laughs> through your training <laughs> well, which is what it is your educational training really which teaching people how to frame conversations and understand the the anatomy of an argument and a discussion but also the role of you know and the power of conversation because obviously it's a it is an art form yeah to be able to communicate and, and have discourse without it being breaking down into conflict because as we've discussed as soon as you reach a point of conflict 
you've kind of lost the argument as soon as there's names and you know personal accusations and attacks we we're not going to meet another person in the middle ground but what are what are some of the sort of i guess the main things you want people to feel confident about once they've you know made their way through most of what you've written i mean the, the word confident yeah. yeah i want people to feel more confident i think um that a lot of the problems that we face are and ones that we can somewhat rectify by feeling more empowered, by feeling like we have more of a, a capability to to speak our mind and do so in a way that that pulls people in, hopefully. So I want people to get to the end of it and feel more determined, you know. I mean, look, I want this book to appeal to non-vegans as well. You know, it's not just a vegan. Obviously, a lot of it is catered towards vegans and and, and that kind of... That. Do you think meat eaters will be curious about this book? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's provocative. <laughs> I Look, I think a lot of meat eaters will see it, roll their eyes and wouldn't yeah. want to buy it. But I think that there's 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 that challenging, inviting mm. aspect that yeah. comes with the title. I like and, that. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I hope that that pulls in maybe some people who are curious. I challenge you to read this and disagree with anything in it. <laughs> pretty much, exactly. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. so I know I hope that a non-vegan will get to the end of it and go, yeah. all right, well, wow, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, mm. okay. I guess that's that one that one answered for me hopefully non-vegans will get to that realization but for vegans I, I, I want them to get to the end of it and firstly feel more conviction I want them to feel like they've made the right choice because you know th- th- this, these narratives can get on our minds you know there's there's so many vegans who will be reading things or seeing things and getting worried you know or maybe maybe this is a thing maybe I should be concerned maybe I should start eating this again you know maybe and so I, I want vegans to get to the end of it and feel you know, okay, like I feel confident, I feel comfortable, I feel like I'm making the right decision for all of these reasons. So firstly that, to ease any, ease any, you know, doubts that might be emerging. But secondly, I want people to feel like they can tackle friends and family members. And it's not about saying, hey, read this book, then get out there in the street and put yourself in every situation possible. That's not what this is about. It's about arming the everyday person as well as the activist and advocate, just the everyday person with what they need just to make these social situations easier. You know, when you're at work and you have that work colleague who wants to make a little demeaning comment, or when you're at home and you're sat around the dinner table and the conversation comes up, or you're your friend and they start teasing you or saying something, whatever the situation is, it's just about saying in that situation, I feel more confident, I feel more capable, I feel like I can say what I want to say and do so in a better way. And then hopefully what they'll translate to is more positive social environments, hopefully bringing more people on side, maybe more vegans, maybe you'll end up getting that family member vegan that you've always wanted to get them to go vegan, you know, maybe you'll have that breakthrough moment of your best friend and they'll join you, you can have big vegan hugs and everything will be wonderful, you know, it's about how can we create an environment where that becomes more likely, how can we feel more confident, more empowered, more knowledgeable, more capable and saying, you know, say to ourselves, look, I feel better with all of this knowledge. And I know now that in these environments, I can stand my ground better and I can make sure that people are responding to me in a more positive manner. So where can we, where can you say that again? Where can we get the book? Waterstones yep. um, is where I drive people f- first. And then obviously places like Amazon, uh, Foils, you know, most, most book places um, in bookstores. And if it's also in independent bookstores, but if it's not in your local one and you want it to be, just tell them and they can they can order it in. So if you want to want to support a local bookstore, then just tell them or to your stock library it. as well. Request it for your local library. Yeah, exactly. Libraries yeah. are also good. And uh, yeah, all, all places like that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ed. Um, it was a pleasure to hear a bit about this amazing book. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you, Robbie, for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Plant Based News podcast with me, Robbie Lockie. Our team also includes. Phil Marriott Polly Foreman Daryl Savchuk Triska Taylor Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals and everything in between.